Welcome to the December 8th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the newly developed PRISM score for risk prediction of venous thromboembolism in multiple myeloma. Learn more about relapse-promoting effects of azithromycin after allogeneic stem cell transplantation and discuss the efficacy of off-the-shelf natural killer cells in preventing antigen escape in lymphoma and leukemia. Our first blood article is entitled Abnormal Metaphase Cytogenetics Predicts Venous Thromboembolism in Myeloma, Derivation and Validation of the PRISM Score by Rajshikar Chakraborty from Columbia University Medical Center and colleagues. Venous thromboembolism, or VTE, is an important complication in patients with multiple myeloma and a common side effect of immunomodulatory drugs, or IMIDs. A large study from Sweden has shown that the risk of VTE is the highest in the first year after myeloma diagnosis. Immunomodulatory drugs associated with a higher risk of VTE include the first-generation imid, thalidomide, especially when given in combination with high-dose dexamethasone, or doxorubicin, and the next-in-class imids, lenalidomide and pomalidomide. VTE risk stratification in multiple myeloma is predominantly based on a simplified algorithm from the Consensus Guideline of the International Myeloma Working Group, or IMWG, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, or NCCN, and the European Myeloma Network. These guidelines currently recommend the administration of either low-dose aspirin or low-molecular-weight heparin to all patients receiving IMIDs for myeloma based on their individual thrombotic risk. To date, Attempts to externally validate the IMWG risk prediction tool have been unsuccessful, and the cumulative incidence of VTE in the first year after diagnosis is significant at approximately 11%. Two additional risk prediction models, namely the SAVED and IMPEDE VTE scores, have been derived, each with limitations. For example, neither model takes into consideration disease-related variables such as tumor burden and cytogenetics. Also, both the SAVED and IMPEDE VTE scores included a substantial number of patients who received high-dose dexamethasone, which is not used in current practice. In addition, the IMPEDE VTE score included patients who were on therapeutic anticoagulation with warfarin and 8% of patients who received doxorubicin, which is rarely used as initial myeloma therapy. Additional limitations of these SAVED and IMPEDE VTE scores are detailed in the report. Since VTE remains one of the most common side effects of antimyeloma therapy, there is an unmet need for a risk prediction model capable of personalizing the intensity of thromboprophylaxis based on the VTE and bleeding risk of individual patients. In the current study, the authors aim to develop and externally validate a new risk prediction model for VTE in patients with newly diagnosed myeloma within 12 months of treatment initiation. The retrospective cohort study included 934 patients with multiple myeloma treated at Cleveland Clinic between January 2008 and December 2018. The median patient age at diagnosis was 63 years. 80% of patients were white, 19% were black, and 55% were male. 
The external validation cohort consisted of 783 patients diagnosed and treated at Columbia University Irving Medical Center between January 2012 and January 2020. Deep venous thrombosis, or DVT, and pulmonary embolism were defined as the primary VTE outcome. Analyzed risk factors included a total of 51 variables, which included all potential risk factors in the IMWG and NCCN guidelines, the established saved and impede VTE scores, as well as variables considered to be clinically relevant but were absent in prior scores or guidelines. A multivariable model was developed to construct a VTE risk score. The model was validated by internal bootstrap validation and using an external validation cohort. A total of 35% of patients had ISS stage 3 disease at diagnosis, 19% had abnormal metaphase cytogenetics, and 24% had high-risk cytogenetics. 6% of patients had a history of VTE, and 12% had a history of arterial thromboembolism. Bortezomib lenalidomide dexamethasone was the most common induction regimen given to 41% of patients. Low-dose aspirin was the most common thromboprophylaxis agent administered to 55% of patients. Approximately one-third of patients did not receive any thromboprophylaxis. 105 out of 934 patients experienced a VTE within the first 12 months of treatment initiation, with a median time to VTE of 3.2 months. 81% of patients had a DVT, with the lower extremity being the most common site. The cumulative incidence of VTE was 8.2% at 8 months and 11.5% at 12 months. Using five variables, namely prior history of VTE, black race, image use in induction therapy, surgery within 90 days, and abnormal metaphase cytogenetics, the authors designed a risk prediction tool called the PRISM score. The model was effective in stratifying patients into low, intermediate, and high-risk groups. The 12-month cumulative incidence of VTE in the derivation cohort in those three risk groups was 2.7%, 10.8%, and 36.5%, respectively. The authors demonstrated that with increasing PRISM score, the risk of VTE increased significantly in both derivation and external validation cohorts, with a hazard ratio per one-point increase of 1.28 and 1.23 in the two cohorts, respectively. Based on these findings, the authors concluded that PRISM could guide clinicians in identifying patients at a high risk of VTE, but that additional external validation is needed. In an accompanying commentary, Anna Falanga and Cinzia Giaccarini from the University of Milano Biococca in Milan, Italy, note that the PRISM score takes into account a new disease-related risk factor, that is, abnormal metaphase cytogenetics. In multiple myeloma, abnormal metaphase cytogenetics are an indicator of aggressive biology and poor survival. Another strength of the model is that the other identified risk factors of 12-month VTE, including prior VTE, prior surgery, use of IMIDs, and black race, are universally available at diagnosis. However, there are several limitations of the PRISM score. First, the total number of VTE events was low especially in the external validation data set. In addition, the authors only accounted for candidate risk factors at baseline and not time-varying risk factors. Since patients with newly diagnosed myeloma can experience VTE-provoking events in the first few months, 
for example, fractures requiring surgery, Falanga and Giaccarini recommend that future studies should investigate the role of incorporating time-varying VTE risk factors. Ultimately, the discrimination power of the PRISM score was similar to or slightly inferior to the saved and impede VTE scores. Falanga and Giaccarini note that future studies focused on VTE risk stratification should incorporate easily applicable risk factors available in the general clinical setting, including disease-specific characteristics. They also emphasize that the clinical relevance of the PRISM score should be confirmed in a prospective real-life validation cohort or a randomized clinical trial before its broad implementation. An example of a relevant study would be testing the efficacy of thromboprophylaxis with direct oral anticoagulants. Next up, we'll discuss the blood article entitled Azithromycin Promotes Relapse by Disrupting Immune and Metabolic Networks After Allogeneic Stem Cell Transplantation by Nicolas Vallée from the Inserm Unit 976 in Paris, France, and colleagues. Graft-versus-host disease remains a significant complication of allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Chronic lung graft-versus-host disease including bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome, or BOS, affects approximately 10% of transplant recipients and is associated with poor outcomes. Azithromycin is the second most prescribed antibiotic in the U.S. and has both antibacterial and anti-inflammatory properties. Although early studies indicated that azithromycin may prevent BOS following lung transplantation, the Phase 3 allo trial examining the effects of azithromycin administration in patients undergoing allogeneic transplant found that azithromycin did not efficiently prevent BOS and was associated with higher mortality due to increased risk of relapse. This finding prompted the U.S. FDA and the European Medicines Agency to issue a warning about azithromycin use after allogeneic transplant. Relapse is the primary cause of death after allogeneic transplant. The occurrence of relapse involves immune escape mechanisms that include the downregulation of class II major histocompatibility complex genes and expression of co-inhibitory molecules. However, the exact associations between the expression of co-inhibitory molecules, defective effector functions, and the presence of exhausted subsets of T cells that may act as drivers of relapse are poorly understood. In the current study, the authors aimed to decipher immune alterations associated with azithromycin administration and relapse after allogeneic transplant by analyzing patient samples from the allozithro trial. They performed complementary flow cytometric, mass cytometric, and single-cell transcriptional analyses, as well as metabolomic analysis on peripheral blood samples of azithromycin and placebo-treated patients to assess cellular composition and pathways affected by azithromycin administration. The findings revealed that patients treated with azithromycin exhibited reduced levels of circulating T-cells. Specifically, T-cells were skewed toward increased T-regulatory, central, and effector memory Th2, CD4 positive, and exhausted CD8 positive central memory cells with a concomitant decrease in cytotoxic or granzyme B-expressing CD8-positive central memory cells. The authors then explored if azithromycin could impact the plasma metabolome by studying metabolites from frozen plasma and white blood cell pellets. 
they found that 73 plasma metabolites were significantly different between patients who received azithromycin and those who received a placebo. Analysis of both plasma and intracellular metabolic pathways demonstrated lower glycolytic activity, which is central to T-cell activation and effector functions, considered integral for graft-versus-leukemia activity. In vitro, azithromycin exposure inhibited T-cell cytotoxicity against tumor cells. Azithromycin exposure inhibited glycolysis in both CD4-positive and CD8-positive subsets after activation, downregulated mitochondrial and pro-inflammatory genes, and upregulated immunomodulatory genes, including SOX1. SOX1 has been shown to abrogate Th1 responses, notably interferon alpha and interleukin-2 synthesis. In a mice model, SOX1 inhibited glycolysis through a STAT3-HIF1-alpha pathway. This mechanism may also explain glycolysis inhibition in T-cells treated with azithromycin. Additional in vitro experiments found that treatment with azithromycin directly inhibited T-cell proliferation, which was exacerbated by the addition of cyclosporin, suggesting an additive effect of the two treatments. Taken together, these findings indicate that azithromycin directly affects immune cells that promote relapse. In an accompanying commentary, Katie Maurer and Robert Seufer from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, note that the findings by Valet and collaborators advance our understanding of the possible mechanisms of relapse after transplant that rely on T-cell exhaustion and ineffective cytotoxic function after azithromycin exposure. These findings are an important reminder that seemingly benign interventions may have unwanted and even fatal consequences. Maurer and Seufer further note that relapse is probably multifactorial, with exhausted or immunoregulatory T-cells likely being the candidate drivers. They believe that future studies should leverage advanced technologies for transcriptional, metabolomic, and pathway analysis to gain a deeper understanding of intra- and intercellular crosstalk driving both relapse and graft-versus-leukemia activity. Preclinical studies of graft selection or manipulation to reduce or reverse exhaustion and promote anti-tumor T-cell activity are needed to determine the precise cell subsets and pathways responsible for the loss of graft-versus-leukemia activity. A better understanding of the interplay between these factors could help identify novel therapeutic targets. In the final segment of today's podcast, we will discuss the report entitled Dual Antigen Targeted Off-the-Shelf NK Cells Show Durable Response and Prevent Antigen Escape in Lymphoma and Leukemia by Frank Chihaki from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and colleagues. The introduction of the CD20-specific antibody rituximab and chimeric antigen receptor, or CAR, T-cells targeting the CD19 antigen has transformed the treatment and outcomes of B-cell leukemia and lymphoma. However, despite the initial success, up to 50% of all patients receiving anti-CD19 CAR T-cell therapy will relapse within the first year due to CD19 antigen loss. Similarly, many initial responders to rituximab will experience CD20 antigen loss. Thus, there is an unmet need for new therapies that can prevent tumor antigen escape. In the current study, the authors generated triple-modified induced pluripotent stem cell-derived natural killer cells and called them the iDuo NK cells. 
these cells express a CD19-targeting CAR for antigen specificity, a high-affinity non-cleavable CD16, or HNCD16, to augment innate antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity, and a membrane-bound IL-15, IL-15 receptor fusion protein for enhanced cytokine persistence. The authors tested the efficacy of I-duo-NK cells in combination with rituximab in several B-cell malignancies using a series of in vitro and in vivo experiments. First, they tested whether the expressed CAR and HNCD16 exhibit additive cytotoxic effects and found evidence of a dual effect in both cell culture assays and in vivo studies. Furthermore, I-duo-NK cells displayed robust CAR-mediated cytotoxicity that could be further enhanced in combination with rituximab. In an in vitro model of tumor heterogeneity that included a mix of CD19-positive and CD19-negative AHR77 cells, the combination of I-duo-NK cells and rituximab was highly cytotoxic and led to effective target elimination regardless of CD19 expression. This unique ability to target malignant over healthy CD19-expressing cells was not previously achievable with anti-CD19 T-cell therapies. iDuo NK cells also exhibited robust anti-lymphoma activity in multiple in vitro and xenogeneic adoptive transfer models. Moreover, treatment with iDuo NK cells and rituximab proved effective in killing assays of primary chronic lymphocytic leukemia derived from five different patients and in an in vivo model of aggressive lymphoma. Specifically, mice treated with a combination of iDuo cells and rituximab exhibited durable antitumor responses and survived significantly longer compared to mice treated with rituximab alone. Finally, in a xenogeneic adoptive transfer model of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, tumor burden was effectively controlled in mice treated with serial doses of iDuo NK cells. The mice that received adoptive transfer of iDuo NK cells also exhibited a significant survival advantage. The authors concluded that in combination with therapeutic antibodies, iDuo NK cells may be effective in preventing relapse due to antigen loss and tumor heterogeneity in patients with B-cell malignancies. In an accompanying commentary, Ruyan Ranama and Chalice Bonifant from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine note that Chihakian collaborators present an exciting approach to targeted cell therapy that can mitigate treatment resistance due to antigen loss or tumor heterogeneity. The genetically engineered iDuo NK cells combine the innate cytotoxic mechanisms of NK cells with specific cell killing mediated by CARs and have unique advantages for clinical translation. Because they are clonally derived from a master human-induced pluripotent stem cell line, iDuo NK cells can be scaled during production and used to generate a cell bank for on-demand access without the need for further engineering or enrichment. Future studies should address the relatively short circulation time of infused NK cells. In addition, because the in vivo experiments in this study were completed within a relatively short timeline and or included multi-dose administration, together with serial interleukin-2 injections, at this time, it is not possible to draw any conclusions about the durability of iDuo NK cells. However, Ranama and Bonifant are optimistic that iDuo NK cells will show anti-tumor activity against B-cell malignancies, and a phase one trial has opened to explore their safety and efficacy.
For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.